We're going to start off by reading the passage in totality, uh, and that is verses 1 through 18, and then we will make some points from there. Proverbs chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies and all the things that you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. That's as far as we will go this morning. Um, I have taught from Proverbs chapter 3 many times before. Uh, Often when I'm in a pinch and I know I can only talk for 20 minutes because I know I can teach from Proverbs 3 in 20 minutes. So I'm going to do that this morning. Each section here is beautiful to me in its own way. Each section deals with a new, with a new topic. Uh, so what I'm going to do this morning is I, I'm going to go through it section by section. And I'm going to point the topics out to you as we go. And I'm going to let them apply uh, as, as you see, as the Holy Spirit of God sees fit in your life. But I will point out that it's not a coincidence that we talk about this as we recognize graduates, that this is counsel of a father to a son. This is counsel from one who is older to one who is younger. This is counsel that is certainly applicable to us at all stages of life, but requires emphasis at a certain stage of life. And if you are at all involved in the lives of young people, you should pay close attention to Proverbs 3 in detail as these break down because you should be emphasizing these things unless we make grave mistakes in our counsel and support of people. So the first section, verses 1 and 2, I will call it morality. Morality, it's a very simple thing. It says, my son, do not forget my law. I don't think this was merely the father's law, but this is in conjecture with the whole law. Um, uh, there's, there's theological and doctrinal points to make behind why I'm saying that. But generally speaking, this is a reference to the law of God, to the wisdom of God, uh, which is what we get from the Proverbs. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Now, I'll just make two quick observations on this section about morality. We would say, in large part, the rest of the world agrees with us when it comes to the 
the, the main tenet of this verse, that, that we should be moral people. You know, that, that's, that is not something uniquely Christian. That is something that you'll find parroted and echoed throughout really all, all, all walks of, of human life. Uh, there's no question that it's beneficial to society and societal groups if the people will behave morally. The challenge here is, what does it mean to behave morally? And that's where we will find conflict with the world, and the world will find conflict with us. In other words, if there is no God describing to us in an authoritative way what is good and evil, then good and evil is merely a construct for human beings to decide uh, what they shall live by. And if it's nothing more than a construct for human beings to make up for themselves, then you can say something is good, and I can say something is good, and this person can say something is good, and who's to say? The authority level is all the same, but that is not the argument from the Bible. The argument from God's word is that there is an authoritative right and wrong. There is an authoritative good and evil. There is a right way to live and there is a wrong way to live. There are right things to do and there are wrong things to do. And it's not up to man to determine what those right things and wrong things might be that it comes to us from God. Notice the promise here for length of days and long life will be added to you. That's you know easy enough to understand. Generally speaking, the reason why the world supports morality is because they see it as a healthy way for people to live. Healthy for them, healthy for society around them. It would be better if we all treated each other well. It would be better if we were all good community people, good citizen people. So it's not hard to understand the general counsel. It doesn't mean that a moral person will never die early or a moral person will you know, kind of be supernaturally sustained so they live to 80, 90, and 100 years old. It's a general rule, as is the case with all wisdom. Proverbs is a book of wisdom. There are always exceptions that don't play out according to the general rule. But in general principle, being a moral person is something that the world would not argue would be profitable for the person and for the people around them. But it's the second part that is unique to Scripture especially. And peace they will add to you. And peace. If we follow God, if we live a life morally according to the word of God, then we will have peace to accompany our life and whatever length it may be. Um, this is something that the world doesn't have and that the world continues to strive for. You can see elements of that in the world around you fairly easily. Does, it, does the world appear to be at peace? No. No. The world deals with personal guilt. What do I do with the things that I'm ashamed of, with the things that I'm not proud of? How do I deal with that? How do I forgive myself? The world deals with anger and angst and bitterness towards other people. How do I forgive this person? How do I live with this person? I'm struggling here. I'm reminded of this all the time. The world deals with bitterness whenever they're faced with disagreements and anger. And what do we do if this person doesn't agree here? If this person doesn't do the right thing here? Do we do this? Do we do this? Do we do this? There's no peace. And more than all of that... There is hovering above all of it whether or not we will have peace with our creator. And if we have a creator, we're not going to find peace in this world apart from a peaceful relationship with him. So basic statement of morality in verses 1 and 2, some of which we could all stick our thumbs in the air and say, yeah, that sounds good. But when you look more deeply, points to the authority of God and the promises that are made. The second section, verses 3 and 4, I would call mercy and truth. Mercy and truth. Not hard to see where I got that name. Verse 3 says, Let not mercy and truth forsake you. But you notice the wording of that. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. In other words, let them not get away from you. It's almost the idea, you know, when you talk about something forsaking you, it's almost the idea that these two things would run away from you if they could. 
Um, now, I don't take that to mean that mercy and truth would run away from us, but in our hearts, who we are as default people, we are not people naturally merciful, naturally tied to truth. We are people who wander. And so the idea here is don't let these two qualities or characteristics wander away from your life. Then we get the counsel in verse 3 of how we're supposed to keep hold of them. Bind them around your neck. Write them as a tablet on your heart. Now, the, the second part of that should sound very familiar. From what I read from Psalm 119, uh, uh, thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. In other words, take mercy and truth and codify them in your innermost being. Make them the laws by which you see the world. Let them become a part of who you are on the inside, not merely how you try to operate on the outside. That's the, the earlier part. But take mercy and truth and make them such a core, fundamental part of who you are as a person that they'll be, it'll be stayed, it'll be tethered to, to, to your innermost being. Write them as a tablet on your heart. But then the, the part right before that, bind them around your neck. In other words, don't just keep them tethered in your heart, but let them be a part of how you present yourself outwardly. Let yourself be known by that. The things that we put around our neck or things that we adorn ourselves with, it's necklaces, jewelry. You know, if you, if you go to a graduation ceremony, you see the ribbons and the things and the, that people put around. Their neck. The, the, the symbology here is let mercy and truth be what we're known for publicly, but bind them internally, write them internally on our heart too so that that's not a forced hypocritical thing. Now, to some extent, we will always struggle with that in sin. We're all sinners. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a struggle that's described in verse 3. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Wrestle with that. Don't let them get away. Daily, put them on. And it says, verse 4, And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. I don't think that means that if we live in mercy and truth, everybody's just going to love us to death and, and we're going to be the most popular people. I don't think that's what it means. I think what it's saying here is this is the way to find. This is the way a godly person pursues favor with God and man. In mer- by, by living out mercy and truth in their lives. There are lots of ways to pursue the, the, the good esteem of, of, of God and man. You could, uh, you could be a, a really shrewd uh, businessman who, who takes advantage of other people and jumps on scenarios and manipulates people and kind of deceptively works himself up to positions of power. But that's not the way that a person should try to find the esteem of God and man. The way a person should try to find the esteem of God and the people around them is in mercy and truth. Mercy, by the way, uh, meaning, frankly, pity. Pity. Pity is not a bad thing unless it's insincere. We should be people who look on others and have mercy, who show pity, who try to, to love. Um, so, that's mercy and truth. Verses five through eight, I would call surrender of the will. Surrender of the will. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Full stop, we can say that in and of itself is an incredibly difficult challenge. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Most of us, if we're being honest, will find it rather simple to trust in the Lord with parts of our heart, with parts of who we are. Well, I trust God when it comes to my family, or I trust God when it comes to my difficulty at work, or I trust God when it comes to telling me good and evil and right and wrong. But that's not what this is saying. This is saying, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and then the, the complimentary phrase after that, and do not lean on your own understanding. That's tough. That's hard. 
we can see right away that the writer here assumes this is going to be a struggle. And so he clarifies in the very next words, in all your ways acknowledge him. We might very well ask, well, how do I trust in the Lord with all my heart? And we have the clarifying remark here at the end of the verse, in verse six, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Now, if that sounds like a very difficult thing to do, I I would agree with you it is. In order to acknowledge God in all of your ways, in the daily events and the structure of your life, you're probably going to have a disciplined approach to spending time with God. You're going to probably have to have a disciplined approach to thinking about your life and your day, or else we know what happens, it just gets away from us. It's just one thing after another after another. Not that that can always be avoided or even should be avoided, But the challenge here is that we should not go running off and pursuing things and dealing with things and interjecting ourselves into things or avoiding things at our own discretion, at our own understanding. We should be acknowledging God. Are there problems and conflicts around you or in your life? Maybe you should do something. Maybe you should stay out of it. How do you know? Well, you should be acknowledging God in all of your ways. Uh, Do you have multiple options in front of you? Well, I might do this, I might do that. I could do this, I could do that. I think it's an especially tough challenge for young people, if I'm being honest. Aren't young people asked all the time, what do you want to do when you grow up? What do you want to do after you graduate? What are you going to do at this point? What are you going to do? I mean, there's a time in a person's life when they seem to get peppered with that question all the time. Then, you know, they get a job, they settle down, people stop asking, you know? And then we have to deal with the other side of it. Hey, are you planning on doing anything? But, but, but for, for a, 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 a young person, it's a normal thing to be asked all the time. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Well, we have counsel here. You should surrender your will to the will of God. You should do that out of trust. Verse 7 says, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Does this mean no hardship? No. It means what the Bible tells us, that our God is able to supply all of our needs. If you have surrendered your will to God so that your life becomes an opportunity to fulfill the will of God, whatever he wants for you in your life, is he not going to strengthen you to be able to do what he's called you to do? Is he going to will for you to do something and then leave you completely depleted when it comes to doing it? He's not. He will supply your needs to perform his will. He may not supply your needs to perform your will, but it will be strength in life to you if he supplies your needs to fulfill his will. Is not the Apostle Paul a living testimony of that? Was that beaten with rods, stoned multiple times, run out of cities, left for dead, and the guy never dies, you know? He's like the bad habit you can't break. He just keeps showing up at the next place and starting church over and over again. Why? Because as he says, my God shall supply all of your needs. Now, he's not a man out there trying to build his own wealth and empire. God didn't sustain him for that. But for the will of God, absolutely. So we have surrender of the will. Verses 9 and 10, faith to give. An especially important counsel for young people because young people will experience increase. I hope. I mean, (laughs) they better experience some increase at some point in time. It says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. Now remember, this is a father talking to a son. I think it's entirely applicable. Hey, son, don't, don't forget that as you experience increase in your life and as you go out and you, you experience blessing and prosperity in your life, don't forget God. That sounds like a man who's experienced some of that. It sounds like a man or perhaps a woman, depending on who's giving the counsel to you, who knows what it's like to honor God 
and perhaps knows what it's like to forget him. So he's told here, honor the Lord with your possessions, with the first fruits of your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats with new wine. In other words, it's the Malachi 3 promise. You know, uh, honor the Lord and see if he will not uh, honor uh, you. See if he will not pour out blessing in your life. You, you challenge him and you put him to the test. It's that kind of a promise and wisdom. You think you can outgive God? Oh, this is, no, give God a shot. Let's see what happens. Give it a shot. In other words, honor the Lord with your possessions. Uh, we don't go around here telling people how much money that uh, they should give. I don't think I've ever had a single pastoral meeting with anybody saying, hey, I want to talk to you about how much money you're giving, or hey, I think you should give more, or I think you should give less. No, we, don't, we, don't, we don't do that around here. But let's not ignore the counsel of God. Honor the Lord with your possessions, the first fruits of your increase. Verse, verse 11 and 12, I would call submission to the Father. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. I don't know if there's a, a more important counsel for young people to hear. Um, because... You know, it seems to me that most young people I have met, and I remember some of what it was like to be uh, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20, mostly concerned with being respected and treated with respect by other adults, other men and women. Um, and it's, so it's very difficult to be corrected. It's very difficult to be, uh, to be, to be uh, offered counsel or, or even a minor rebuke or an exhortation to do something different. It's very difficult. It's hard for any of us to be corrected. But it's particularly hard, I think, for younger people. I think as you get older, if you have an approach to humility that understands that you actually haven't figured everything out and you actually don't know everything, uh, a Christian person should get used to being corrected. <laughs> I know uh, it's, it's not that odd for me to be corrected anymore. Uh, someone can say, ah, you should have done this. And I, so oftentimes I raise my hands and I say, yeah, you may be right. <laughs> uh, maybe I should have. Oh, we should have done this, or oh, you should have said this, or you shouldn't have done this. And, and oftentimes they're right. I mean, you get used to being corrected if you approach life from a position of humility. I mean, you realize how frequently you could have done something better, or you should have done something different, or something might have turned out differently. But for young people, it's very hard. It's very hard. And so the correction here, don't despise correction. Don't despise chastening. Um, there's a complimentary passage in the New Testament which says specifically to young people that young people should, uh, should uh, respect and honor uh, and submit to uh, pastors and, and, and leaders in their life. Um, and it's in that same vein it goes on to talk about humbling themselves because it's very hard to be corrected. It's very hard to, for someone to look at you and say, hey, maybe you know, we're not doing the right thing. We should do something different. It's good counsel. Finally, we'll end here. Joy and wisdom, verses 13 through 18. Joy and wisdom. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Now just pause there. Don't miss what it said. Happy. Happy. Joyful. This is not just about wisdom. This is about your happiness. And we've probably all said or heard someone say, I just want you to be happy. You've probably heard that before. Well, this is a real father talking to a real son. And he's talking to him about happiness. He says, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Now, listen to what it says or you'll miss it. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver 
and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things that you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. Now listen, because you could hear that the wrong way. It doesn't say that if you pursue wisdom, you will have silver and gold and rubies. Or you will have riches and honor and long life. It doesn't say that. It says wisdom possesses all of those things. Not, not you, not a promise that you will possess them all. Wisdom possesses all those things. Notice what the verse, the passage began with in verse 13. Happy as the man who finds wisdom. Now the idea there is not that you have stumbled upon it. Okay, sometimes you find something you didn't expect to find. That happens every time I move my couch to vacuum underneath it. It's normally not anything that I put there, but I have five kids and stuff just, it just shows up there. I mean, and we have this big sectional, it's a lot of work. And so you take it apart and while you're doing it, you're wondering the whole time, what's, what's behind door number three? What's going to show up under there, right? That's not, it's not, that's not the kind of finding we're talking about here. This is not something, wisdom is not something you're going to stumble into. You might stumble into some good life lessons, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking, this is describing wisdom as something worth pursuing. And that's why it talks about gold and silver and rubies and precious things and long life. Because the text assumes that we as human beings are hardwired to pursue those things, earthly things. The text assumes, hey, I'm a father and I'm looking at my son and I want you to know don't go out and try to get silver and gold and rubies and riches and honor. and Don't pursue that. Pursue wisdom. Wisdom possesses all those things. Pursue wisdom. Wisdom will make you happy if you find it. Not gold and silver and rubies and honor. You can see that here, right? Don't pursue gold and silver and rubies. Don't pursue long life. Don't pursue riches and honor. Pursue wisdom. It possesses all of those things, which is true, which is true. Wisdom possesses all of those things. It doesn't mean every person who's wise will possess them all. But there are very few people, as a general rule, and this is a Proverbs, this is a general rule, there are very few people who get rich without some kind of wisdom, there are very few people who live very long lives without some kind of wisdom. So he's using a general truth that everybody can acknowledge to encourage us to pursue a specific kind of wisdom that can make us happy. So what should you do? Well, maybe you should go and you should buy the, the code of Hammurabi from an ancient bookstore this afternoon. Or maybe, maybe you should go back to the Dr. Seuss books and see what kind of sayings you can glean from those as a you know, the, the, the rhymes that you can remember. Or maybe you should just power memorize 20 or 30 verses of the Bible. Wisdom is a pursuit. It says in verse 17, her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. There's that word again, peace. 
The kind of wisdom that this writer is encouraging you to pursue is a wisdom found only in God. That the pursuit of it, the path of it, the way of it itself is peace, is pleasantness, is good. It says here, she is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Now that's the promise. It doesn't promise that you'll get riches, rubies, gold and silver, long life. But it promises that those who take hold of her will partake of the tree of life. Now we know the tree of life is a reference to eternal life. So we're talking about something that comes from God. We're talking about wisdom from God. Not wisdom that comes from Oprah or Dr. Phil or whoever else is out there. Not, not wisdom that comes from pop culture and celebrities. We're talking about a wisdom that comes from God because His wisdom will make you happy. I just want to read two passages to you and I think I'll be right there. I'll be pretty close. First, I won't read it. I'll just tell you that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3 says, in the New Testament fulfillment of this, that Christ is the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. And not, not, not Christ is the one in whom all wisdom is hidden. You can find wisdom throughout the Bible. But in Christ, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So if you want to get to the reward, the joy, the, 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 the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, the treasure here is found in Christ. Wisdom and knowledge of God lead a person to Christ. And in Christ, there is a reward. There is a treasure. This becomes more apparent in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I'll just read this to you. It says, verse 30 of that passage, But of Him you are in Christ Jesus. That's the Christian person. The Christian person's life is built on Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God. Jesus became for us wisdom from God. How did he do that? By dying on a cross? Does that seem wise to you? Does that seem, does, does, does a life led that ends with you being crucified and condemned by your people seem wise to you? This passage says that it is. It says, he became for us wisdom from God and, here's the wisdom part of it, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It was wise of Jesus to go to a cross if it means the redemption, the sanctification, the righteousness of all of us. In that, the wisdom of God is clear. So in our pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of wisdom should lead you to Jesus Christ. God's wisdom is revealed in Christ, which means God's wisdom may involve suffering for you. It will involve a surrender of your will. You cannot live your life asking yourself, what do I want to do today? What do I want to do tomorrow? What plan would I like to do? Proverbs 3 would challenge you, don't lean on your own understanding of these things. Acknowledge God. He will direct your paths. And then it promises there's happiness in that. I don't know where you are at in your life today. Um, I don't know how you live, whether or not you have an approach to God on a regular basis. But I'll tell you this. If you struggle for happiness, it could very well be that you've wandered a little bit into the kind of construction that the foolish man who built on his, on his uh, plot of sand started his business on that uh, the life that you're living, it's always just sinking down. It's always just sinking down. It's always just sinking down. 
Um, the choir song, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I'll tell you that. You can be very wealthy and, and build a life on sinking sand. Um, you can be very prosperous and have lots of honor in the community. And the life around you is just constantly sifting away. You could be very prosperous and have lots of pleasure in your life. And when tragedy, when difficulty, when death comes, when you stand before the Lord even, watch it just sift away and sift away and sift away. Jesus closes his most famous sermon with the testimony of the wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rock there, he describes, he defines as those who hear his words and do them. That sounds like wisdom to me. I want to build a life that lasts. How do you do that? Well, you don't build it on sand. You build it on the rock of Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior today, if he's not your Lord, if you're living life according to your own will, I would challenge you, that's all sifting sand. Every step you take forward, it's going to give way underneath you. You'll always be fighting an uphill battle. There'll never be stability that leads to joy and peace with God. I hope if that's you, that you'll come forward at the end of the service and that you'll talk with me, that I can pray with you, that you'll at least let me know so I can know where you're at. For the Christian, the fight for joy begins and ends with the pursuit of Jesus Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I love you and I thank you for your people who come and who worship you and who serve you. I pray, Father, that we would be a happy people, that we would not be a miserable people, Father, I pray that our happiness will not be built upon how our family's doing or how our job's doing or how our hobbies are doing or how our interests are doing or our sports team or, or whatever else may afflict us, how our bank account is doing. I pray, Father, that our happiness will be built on knowing and serving you, that we will find it pleasant to walk in your ways, that we will find it peaceful to walk in your ways that we will know, as we're promised in the New Testament, a peace that surpasses even our own understanding because we're not leaning on our own understanding. We're following you. I think that would be a great gift for all of us, especially those who are young and graduating. Give it to us now, Father. Help us to pursue wisdom. Give us an appetite for it. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.